The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. There's a story of Robert Oppenheimer being so uh, caught up in, in how intelligent he was, how much he knew and was able to absorb, but also how hidden away he was uh, in college and later before his work on the atomic bomb. And I think the story goes that he didn't even know or wasn't really truly aware of the stock market crash or even the Great Depression until he read about it in the papers a few years later. And I think we can probably imagine uh, a similar uh, a similar bent uh, hovering around the scientists who worked on the atomic bomb. Certainly not all of them, but enough of them. And along with that kind of youthful unawareness of the rest of the world, there is also uh, the example of Oppenheimer's own awakening. I think he says early in one of the quotes I'm going to read uh, in a few moments that uh, in the 30s he became aware of uh, all the threats that were hovering, or worse, over the lives of European Jews and, uh, and his family. I believe he still had family in Europe. And many of the atomic scientists who uh, helped uh, with the Manhattan Project also had families in Europe. And so the, uh, the question on the one hand is the idealism of knowledge, the idealism of uh, almost a genius of mind to be able to comprehend uh, physics and to uh, make something new out of it. On the other hand, there is then the awakening to the wider world the uh, the patriotic duty that many of them saw in going into bomb work, the realization from many of them that uh, while at first they had gone into the bomb work uh, enthusiastically because they believed that the target for the bomb would have been Germany, these being mostly uh, uh, European exiles or uh, scientists with families still in Europe, so they believed that they were working to free their own families, and so there ended up being a great shock when they realized that, no, this bomb that they created was going to be dropped on a uh, another people entirely, someone who, uh, a country that had nothing to do uh, with the sufferings of their family or their friends. And it's a very difficult situation because it's also a creative situation. Um, And thinking about what I could possibly say here as an introduction, I thought of the uh, story from the book of Genesis, the Akedah, as Jews refer to it, which is simply the word for binding, the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22, the near sacrifice of Isaac. And... I remember hearing a, uh, a rabbi talking about what that story meant to him. 
and for him the the idea of Abraham um, very nearly sacrificing his own son because God told him to do it it struck him uh, being uh, this rabbi it struck him being a parent as being something akin to what all parents do uh, to their children uh, while trying to advance themselves professionally. Uh, in the rabbi's case, it's probably uh, tending to his congregation more than his family and his children sometimes, being more devoted to the study of Torah and Talmud and uh, the hugeness of uh, Jewish tradition. We could think of um, any clergy that is allowed to get married and have families having the same issue. Um, so when you come back to Abraham, the, the image is of someone who is so caught up uh, in this God that he has found, um, and he is so caught up in this new sense of piety and revelation of what he has found, that he is willing to do literally anything, literally the worst thing, in order to uh, keep that relationship with this God going. Now, of course, that's the, the probably the most negative view of the Abraham story. There are much uh, sunnier versions of, uh, of what that story can possibly be about. But on a night when we're talking uh, about the atomic bomb, I don't think that's an inappropriate one to mention. And to be honest, uh, it is where I stand myself. I mean, to be honest, what am I really doing the best thing that I can possibly be doing in the world right now? Uh, not being in the company of my wife, not being in the company of my daughter right now, but instead uh, adding on to uh, my obsession with the subject by recording this in our basement. Um, it's a very uh, tricky and complex and uh, difficult idea. And we will see it here in these quotations, how the scientists, and it's odd, it, it seems, uh, it doesn't seem convincing, at least to me the first time I heard it, it didn't seem convincing to me that these scientists could become so wrapped up in the work, in solving the problem of making this bomb work that they didn't really think about its use. Many of them didn't think about it for a long time until its use became uh, a definite possibility. Uh, it's hard for us to imagine that. Uh, you're making a bomb. You're certainly using physics and advanced mathematics and everything to try and figure it out, but at the end of the day, it is a weapon of immense destructive capability. Uh, and it's hard for us, for those, I guess, who are outside of a process like that, to imagine that these scientists would have forgotten that. But then in my own life, all I really have to do, uh, I look back at uh, the 10 years that I spent writing uh, a 400-page poem, and all the late nights where uh, my wife went to bed first, or where I spent my... Um, my lunch hour at work, not talking with my coworkers, but working on that poem. I, I didn't have a clear head of priorities, really. 
uh, because I was obsessed with this project. And I'm not equating uh, a long poem to the atomic bomb by any re by any in any way, but it is a way in for me to uh, understand what what might have been going on here. And so here we are with uh, more talk from the scientists, mostly the scientists, but there will also be the politicians. The first actually comes from Thomas Jefferson, who said, I know of no safe depository of the ultimate powers of the society, but the people themselves. And if we think them not, not enlightened enough to exercise that control with a whole and wholesome discretion, the remedy is not to take it from them, but to inform them, inform them of their discretion. And fast forward to President Roosevelt speaking at a Pan-American Scientific Congress in Washington in 1940, where he said, you who are scientists may have been told that you are in part responsible for the debacle of today. But I assure you that it is not the scientists of the world who are responsible. What has come about has been caused solely by those who would use and are using the progress that you have made along lines of peace in an entirely different cause. And here is Robert Oppenheimer on his political awakening, which took place around 1936 or so. And he said, I had had a continuing smoldering fury about the treatment of Jews in Germany. I had relatives there and was later to help in extricating them and bringing them to this country. And here is physicist Robert Wilson speaking about Robert Oppenheimer. Oppie would get a faraway look in his eyes and tell me that this war was different from any war ever fought before. It was a war about the principles of freedom. He was convinced that the war effort was a mass effort to overthrow the Nazis and upset fascism, and he talked of a people's army and a people's war. The language had changed so little. It's the same kind of political language, except now it has a patriotic flavor, whereas before it just had a radical flavor. And of course, anyone looking into uh, Oppenheimer's biography saw his uh, dabblings with the uh, Communist Party in America. And that is, I'm pretty sure, what Robert Wilson is referring to. Here is physicist Otto Frisch recalling the moment in 1940, quote, when he understood a bomb might be possible after all, end quote. And he says, I have often been asked why I didn't abandon the project there and then, saying nothing to anybody. Why start on a project which, if it was successful, would end with the production of a weapon of unparalleled violence, a weapon of mass destruction such as the world had never seen. The answer was very simple. We were at war, and the idea was reasonably obvious. Very probably, some German scientists had had the same idea and were working on it. And that really is the simplest explanation for why it was developed and why it was ultimately used. Um, I don't know of any pacifist argument uh, at all that has, an, had, had, that has a good answer for 
what if Japan had uh, begun uh, firebombing American cities? What if Germany had begun firebombing American cities? What if Japan had dropped an atomic bomb on American cities? What if Germany had dropped an atomic bomb on American cities? Would even uh, the most ardent pacifist have complained at some point after those events that the American government, the, the American military, and the American scientists hadn't uh, created these weapons and used them first to protect the country. Uh, a realistic and cynical view of life seems to be all that uh, we can possibly have in a situation like World War II. Uh, here is mathematician Stanislav Ulam on arriving with his brother in America. He says, Our father and sister were in Poland. So were many other relatives. At the moment, I suddenly felt as if a curtain had fallen on my past life, cutting it off from my future. There has been a different color and meaning to everything ever since. And here is, here is uh, Robert Oppenheimer to physicist I.I. Rabi. He says, I do not think that the Nazis allow us the option of not carrying out that development. And here is Edward Teller. He says, I came to the United States in 1935, and the handwriting was on the wall. At that time, I believed that Hitler would conquer the world unless a miracle happened. To deflect my attention from physics, my full-time job, which I liked, to work on weapons was not an easy matter, and for quite a time I did not make up my mind. And the tail end of another quote from him, if the scientists in the free countries will not make weapons to defend the freedom of their countries, then freedom will be lost. And physicist Emilio Segre, upon hearing of Hitler's death, death, he says, we have been too late, because of course by the time of Hitler's death they had not tested the bomb yet, the famous Trinity test, and he says we have been too late to drop our weapon on Germany. Here is physicist Freeman Dyson on Joseph Rotblat. Um, Rotblat saw no point in continuing work on a weapon that was no longer needed to defeat Germany. This is someone who only saw a point in using the atomic bomb on Germany. And I mentioned uh, the physicist Robert Wilson in the last episode here. And I'll mention again, uh, take a look at the uh, documentary uh, linked in the post description called The Day After Trinity. Robert Wilson has a, uh, a wonderful part to play. Uh, all the times they switch to him and what he says, you can still tell uh, how difficult all of this was for him. And this is a handful of quotations from him. He said once, We did have a pretty intense discussion of why it was that we were continuing to make a bomb after the war had virtually been won. And at another point he said, I thought we were fighting the Nazis, not the Japanese particularly. And at another point, I would like to think now that at the time of the German defeat I would have stopped, taken stock, thought it all over, 
and that I would have walked away from Los Alamos at that time. In terms of everything that I believed in before, during, and after the war, I cannot understand why I did not make that act. On the other hand, it simply was not in the air, and I don't know of a single instance of anyone who made that suggestion or who did leave. There might have been someone I didn't know, but at the time it just was not something that was part of our lives. Our life was directed to do one thing, as though we had been programmed to do that, and we, as automatons, were doing it. And at another point he said, I felt betrayed when the bomb was exploded over Japan, without discussion or some peaceful demonstration of its power to the Japanese. And then you come to the awful moment for these physicists when uh, everything that they worked for, the object of all of their effort, uh, all of their striving, is uh, it is only at the point at which it works, after, it is only at the point at which they have finally made it work that it is taken out of their hands and they have no uh, authority to uh, discuss how or when it is used at all. Here is uh, Robert Oppenheimer. When you see something that is technically sweet, you go ahead and do it, and you argue about what to do about it only after you have had your technical success. That is the way it was with the atomic bomb. I do not think anybody opposed making it. There were some debates about what to do with it after it was made. And here is physicist Hans Bethe in, on the atmosphere at Los Alamos. He said, But I have never observed in any one of these other groups quite the spirit of belonging together, quite the urge to reminisce about the days of the laboratory, quite the feeling that this was really the great time of their lives. That this was true of Los Alamos was mainly due to Oppenheimer. He was a leader and physicist Freeman Dyson on Robert Oppenheimer. Restlessness drove him to his supreme achievement, the fulfillment of the mission of Los Alamos without pause for rest or reflection. And here's physicist Victor Weisskopf. The thought of quitting did not even cross my mind. And here is Joseph Grew, U.S. Ambassador to Japan. Victory or death is no mere slogan for these soldiers. It is plain, matter-of-fact description of the military policy that controls their forces, from the highest generals to the newest recruits. The man who allows himself to be captured has disgraced himself and his country. And here is Marine General Alexander A. Vandergrieft, fighting at the time in the Solomons and at Guadalcanal. He says, I have never heard or read of this kind of fighting, the kind of fighting the Japanese were engaged in. These people refuse to surrender. The wounded will wait until we come up to examine them and blow themselves and the other fellow to death with a hand grenade. And here is journalist John Hersey. Quite frequently you hear the Marines say, I wish we were fighting against Germans. They are human beings like us. Fighting against them must be like an athletic performance, matching your skills against someone you know is good. Germans are misled, but at least they react like men. 
but the Japs are like animals. Against them, you have to learn a whole new set of physical reactions. You have to get used to their animal stubbornness and tenacity. They take to the jungle as if they had been bred there, and like some beasts, you never see them until they are dead. And here's journalist Henry C. Wolfe in Harper's, who called for the fire, who called for the fire bombings of Japan's inflammable matchbox cities. He said, it seems brutal to be talking about burning homes, but we are engaged in a life and death struggle for national survival, and we are therefore justified in taking any action that will save the lives of American soldiers and sailors. We must strike hard with everything we have at the spot where it will do the most damage to the enemy. And here is physicist I.I. Robbie again, uh, seeing Robert Oppenheimer after the Trinity test that took place at, in the desert of uh, Granado del Muerto in New Mexico in July of 1945. This is after Oppenheimer, uh, after the first test and Oppenheimer has uh, seen that it works. Uh, Robbie says, Oppenheimer was in the forward bunker when he came back, there he was, you know, with his hat, his famous pork pie hat. You've seen the pictures of Robert's hat. And he came to where we were in the headquarters, so to speak. And his walk was like high noon. I think that's the best I could describe it, this kind of strut. He had done it. He had done it. And here is Robert Oppenheimer remembering the Trinity test years later. And this is a, uh, I believe this is what... John Else used as the closing for uh, the day after Trinity. Uh, Oppenheimer appeared on television and this is what he said. We waited until the blast had passed, walked out of the shelter and then it was extremely solemn. We knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed, a few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty, and to impress him he takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And Oppenheimer says, I suppose we all thought that, one way or another. And that's the thing. Um, it isn't just that right after it happened, Oppenheimer is walking around cocky like high noon, and years later uh, he's moaning about it. I think the real complexity here is that both were probably happening at the same time. High noon and the Bhagavad Gita and John Donne and all of it, uh, all wrapped into one, and no way like a, uh, uh, like a blanket that you've made. You can't uh, you can't take any one thread out uh, and isolate it. It's all woven together. Here is physicist Robert Wilson recalling Oppenheimer's words the day after the Trinity test. Those poor little people, those poor little people, referring to the Japanese. Since, of course, this is after Germany has surrendered, so he knows that if it is going to be used, it is going to be used against the Japanese. Uh, here is physicist Robert Wilson's words after the Trinity test to fellow scientist Richard Feynman. He simply says, uh, 
it is a terrible thing we made. Here are two quotations from Henry Stimson, the American Secretary of War. He says, I believe Japan is susceptible to reason in such a crisis to a much greater extent than is indicated by our current press and other current comment, such as those of the soldiers and the journalists that I just quoted earlier. Japan is not a nation composed wholly of mad fanatics of an entirely different mentality from ours. On the contrary, she has within the past century shown herself to possess extremely intelligent people capable in an unprecedentedly short time of adopting not only the complicated technique of Occidental civilization, but to a substantial extent their culture and their political and social ide ideals. Her advance in all these respects during the short period of 60 or 70 years has been one of the most astounding feats of national progress in history. It is therefore my conclusion that a carefully timed warning should be given to Japan. And here's another quotation. Here is the second one from Henry Stimson. My chief purpose was to end the war in victory with the least possible cost in the lives of the men in the armies which I had helped to raise. In the light of the alternatives, which on a fair estimate were open to us, I believe that no man in our position and subject to our responsibilities, holding in his hands a weapon of such possibilities for accomplishing this purpose and saving those lives, could have failed to use it and afterwards looked his countrymen in the face. And uh, there are two things again. It isn't that he thought one of those things on a Monday and thought the second a year later. It is that he would have thought both of those things at the same time and that there would not have been, uh, there would have been no way out. That seems to be the definition of tragedy, at least for me. Um, the impossible situation, the impossible decision. Um, here is Robert Oppenheimer's boss, General Leslie Groves, head of the Manhattan Project. He said, I had set as the governing factor that the targets chosen should be places the bombing of which would be most adversely affect the will of the Japanese people to continue the war. Beyond that, they should be military in nature, consisting either of important headquarters or troop concentration, or centers of production of military equipment and supplies. To enable us to assess accurately the effects of the bomb, the targets should not have been previously damaged by air raids. It was also desirable that the fire that the fire target of such size that the damage would be confined within it so that we could more definitely determine the power of the bomb. And here is a scientist at Los Alamos in May 1945 who, while beginning to sense the moral implications of their work, quote, was still caught up in the momentum of the project and the excitement of their technology. Here is, here is an Air Force document recommending Kyoto and Hiroshima as the atomic bomb targets. 1. Kyoto. The target is an urban industrial area with a population of 1 million. It is the former capital of Japan and many people and industries are now being moved there as other areas are being destroyed. 
from the psychological point of view, there is the advantage that Kyoto is an intellectual center for Japan, and the people there are more apt to appreciate the significance of such a weapon as the gadget. That's the, that's the thing. They constantly refer to the bomb as the gadget. Number two, Hiroshima. This is an important army depot and a port of embarkation in the middle of the urban industrial area. It is a good radar target and it is such a size that a large part of the city would be extensively damaged. There are adjacent hills which are likely to produce a focusing effect which would considerably increase the blast damage. Due to rivers, it is not a good incendiary target. Now, after Germany was ruled out as a target, and after a handful of staged demonstrations of what an atomic bomb was capable of was also ruled out, a scientific panel of the Interim Committee, which included Ernest Lawrence and Rico Fermi, Robert Oppenheimer and Arthur Compton, said this, Those who advocate a purely technical demonstration would wish to outlaw the use of atomic weapons and have feared that if we use the weapons now, our position in the future negotiations will be prejudiced. Others emphasize the opportunity of saving American lives by immediate military use, and believe that such use will improve the international prospects, in that they are more concerned with the prevention of war than with the elimination of this specific weapon. We find ourselves closer in these latter views. We can propose no technical demonstration likely to bring an end to the war. We see no acceptable alternative to direct military use. <coughs> and of course, uh, I mean, that seems to be right. Uh, the first bomb was dropped and it uh, elicited no reaction of surrender at all. So how can we imagine that simply dropping it away from people would have uh, made much of a difference either? Here is General Dwight Eisenhower remembering talking with Henry Stimson in July 1945. The cable was in code. You know the way they do it. The lamb is born or some damn thing like that. So then he told me that they were going to drop it on the Japanese. Well, I listened and I didn't volunteer anything because, after all, my war was over in Europe and it wasn't up to me. But I was getting more and more depressed just thinking about it. Then he asked me for my opinion, so I told him I was against it on two counts. First, the Japanese were readying to surrender, and it wasn't necessary to hit them with that awful thing. And second, I hated to see our country be the first to use such weapons. Well, the old gentleman got furious, and I can see how he would. After all, it had been his responsibility to push for all the huge expenditure to develop the bomb which of course he had a right to do, and was right to do. Still, it was an awful problem, and that's it. Uh, it is an awful problem. Um, everyone wants to talk about American exceptionalism, and sometimes uh, the exceptionalism uh, swings both ways. Um, uh, the extremes swing both ways, don't they? Uh, Robert Oppenheimer speaking to his brother, also a physicist, upon hearing uh, about the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. Oppenheimer simply said, it worked. 
And then another remark that Frank Oppenheimer recalled his brother saying, at first he said, thank God it wasn't a dud. But only, but a moment later, he suddenly got this look of horror of all the people that had been killed. Here is physicist Otto Frisch again. Somebody opened my door and shouted, Hiroshima has been destroyed. About a hundred thousand people were thought to have been killed. I still remember the feeling of unease, indeed nausea, when I saw how many of my friends were rushing to the telephone to book tables at the La Fonda Hotel in Santa Fe in order to celebrate. Of course, they were exalted by the success of their work, but it seemed rather ghoulish to celebrate the sudden death of a hundred thousand people, even if they were, quote, enemies. Here is Robert Oppenheimer, the evening after Hiroshima was bombed, speaking to a, quote, cheering, foot-stamping audience gathered in the Los Alamos Auditorium. He said, It was too early to determine what the results of the bombing might have been, but he was sure that the Japanese did not like it. And here is Robert Oppenheimer writing to his former teacher after Hiroshima. You will believe that this undertaking has not been without its misgivings. They are heavy on us today, when the future, which has so many elements of high promise, is yet only a stone's throw from despair. And again, that's both things at once. Uh, you can imagine a guy uh, getting the crowd going by saying, the Japanese didn't like it, uh, which, which sounds slightly sickening. And then, uh, but at the same time, he says, we are all only a stone's throw from despair. Both of these things, many things, are happening all at once. Here is Robert Oppenheimer writing to his old friend, Hokan Chevalier, after Hiroshima. He says, circumstances are heavy with misgiving, and far, far more difficult than they should be, had we power to remake the world uh, to be as we think it should be. Here is Robert Oppenheimer, after Hiroshima, uh, saying to a military reporter that he was, quote, a little scared of what I had made. But he immediately added, a scientist cannot hold back progress because of fears of what the world will do with his discoveries. And here's the author Peter Goodchild and the scientists of Los Alamos following the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. For years, most of the men at Los Alamos, and there, there were women, uh, had been caught up in the excitement of the technical challenge and had given so little thought to the consequences of their actions. Their celebration marked the profound relief that a monumental task had been achieved but at the same time, there was a realization of the awfulness of what they had done. That night, as Oppenheimer walked away from the celebrations, he came across one of the younger scientists, stone-cold sober and retching into the bushes. And here is Alice Kimball Smith, wife of one of the Los Alamos scientists. As the days passed, the revulsion grew bringing with it, even for those who believe that the end of the war justified the bombing, an intensely personal experience of the reality of evil. And again, I don't, I don't deny that in any way. Uh, it is, uh, all war is immoral, and, and all war is immoral. 
uh, Robert Oppenheimer on the scientist at Los Alamos in October 1945. In October 1945, after it's been made, after it's been dropped, all they think about now are the social and economic implications of the bomb. They did not consider those things before then. Here's Robert Oppenheimer speaking to Los Alamos scientists on October 16th, 1945. Today, that pride must be tempered with a profound concern. If atomic bombs are to be added as new weapons to the arsenals of a warring world, or to the arsenals of nations preparing for war, then the time will come when mankind will curse the names of Los Alamos and Hiroshima. The peoples of the world must unite or they will perish. This war that has ravaged so much of the earth has written these words. The atomic bomb has spelled them out for all men to understand. Other men have spoken them in other times of other wars of other weapons. They have not prevailed. They are, some, misled by a false sense of human history, who hold that they will not prevail today. It is not for us to believe that. By our works we are committed, committed to a world united, before the common peril, in law, and in humanity. And here is Robert Oppenheimer a month later, speaking before the Association of Los Alamos Scientists. After admitting that one reason why scientists had built the bomb was, be, was out of a, quote, sense of adventure, end quote, he went on to say, when you come right down to it, the reason that we did this job is because it was an organic necessity. If you are a scientist, you cannot stop such a thing. If you are a scientist, you believe that it is good to find out how the world works, that it is good to find out what the realities are, that it is good to turn over mankind at large the greatest possible power to control the world and to deal with it according to its lights and values. It is not possible to be a scientist unless you believe that the knowledge of the world and the power which it gives is a thing which is of intrinsic value to humanity and that you are using it to help in the spread of knowledge and are willing to take the consequences. We must be willing to take the consequences. Just to go back to Alice Kimball Smith, an intensely personal experience of the reality of evil. Um, it's a strange thing about Americans. Uh, on the one hand, uh, there are people, like many of the poets in that anthology that I mentioned in the first episode about the bomb, who would write poems with titles like To Robert Oppenheimer in Hell. Um, I think that's too simplistic. Um, on the other hand, uh, and they would say this was evil and it should not have been done, uh, there are those who cannot fathom their country, their America, doing anything that could be called evil. And so they say it wasn't evil and it should have been done. Uh, I think the whole point of, of why I'm presenting these now is to show the difficult middle way. It was evil and it had to be done. 
Um, it was evil and there was no avoiding it. Uh, we have to um, be willing to see uh, the hand that we have all had in evil. Um, that seems to be uh, one of the great uses for art and religion is to help uh, understand that point of view and not to see the extreme uh, denial either on one side or the other. Although I'm sure I will lose listeners for saying that, that they probably haven't listened to this far anyway. Uh, here is David Lilienthal, the first chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, writing in his diary of the, quote, keen enthusiasm of the Los Alamos scientists. And he said, I don't object at all to the expressions of satisfactions, satisfaction that the job is being pushed and done well, but that there should not be even a single token expression of profound concern and regret that we are engaged in developing weapons directed against the indiscriminate destruction of defenseless women and children. This bothered me. We keep saying we have no other course. What we should say is we are not bright enough to see any other course. Uh, and I would just add to that, uh, I don't know everything, I haven't read everything, um, but everything I know about history, about how human beings have acted and no doubt will continue to act, um, it's not that we're not bright enough to see any other course. It's that at some point uh, we have painted ourselves into a corner again. And the other course, as I've mentioned here from the words of others, is what if they get it first? What if they use it on us first? We are, we are, we are all of us because of how we treat other people, because of how we treat uh, those who are different from us in any way. Uh, humanity and bureaucracy, governments, intelligence, military, uh, the smartest people in the entire world, uh, the wonderful idea that uh, the, that Europe sleptwalk, a uh, uh, book called Sleepwalkers, sleepwalking into World War I, that you have these people in uh, early 1900s Europe who, who grew up and were groomed for these positions uh, in the aristocracy and uh, in the channels of governments going back and forth from country to country. They were groomed for a situation like what led up to World War I, and they were educated to be able to avoid it, and yet they couldn't. Um, there is something about humanity, no matter the large buildings and the fancy suits and the speeches and, uh, and just the great cities, just being impressed by them, by culture, by the by the, the sweep of a, of a country's history or of, a, or of an office or of a title, whatever it is, uh, there is something about it that is, at the end, uh, basically fifth graders uh, on, a, on a playground. Nothing better than children. Um, 
the only difference being these are adults and um, an actual blood is shed. I don't know of another way out of that. Tomorrow, for those of you who are left, um, I will see. I will read the voices from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And after that, uh, just some summing up. So, until then. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.